This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited to launch this new podcast listener support project. We hope you'll visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for finding out ways of how you can support the podcast, but get stuff in return, like books from our guests here on the podcast, like sending in questions for upcoming guests, like joining me on an actual interview with one of our guests. And of course, the VIP experience at this summer's General Assembly by joining me with whoever we bring in for the podcast stage. And now, on to our conversation. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two Advocacy in Action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy in action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy in Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy in Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy in Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. John H. Walton. John is the professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College Graduate School. He is the author of several books, including Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology and the Lost World of Genesis, along with numerous commentaries. He's got a new editorial workout, the Revised Standard Version Cultural Background Bible Study, our study Bible. Uh, Dr. Walton, thank you for joining the conversation. Great to be here, chat. Now, for those that aren't familiar uh, with you, uh, take us a little deeper behind just the Old Testament scholar. Tell us a little bit more about you. Okay. Well, I was raised in a Christian family outside of Philadelphia and really have been part of the church uh, all my life. And so I grew up learning about the Bible, loving the Bible, caring about the Bible. And I eventually found my way into biblical studies for, for academic purposes. It took me a while to get there, but did my graduate work at Wheaton College, first of all, in Old Testament, and then at Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, specializing in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern backgrounds. Um, coming out of grad school, I taught at Moody for 20 years, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And that now I've been at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, for almost 20 years. I have three grown children, um, and uh, who my wife and I are very proud of. And so, yeah, that's about it. So how does a kid from Philly end up in Chicago? It's where the job was. <laughs> that, that does it every time, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, you're almost a 40-year a veteran in... Um, you know, the work of Old Testament and uh, ancient Near East. Um, what made you select uh, these things as your scholarly focus? Uh, for the Old Testament, it's, it's difficult for me to track back because my interest in the Old Testament kind of goes before my earliest memories. But I was raised, uh, again, as I mentioned, raised in the Bible. And so I learned the Old Testament very early, very thoroughly, just because that's how my family and my church were. And uh, why I decided eventually to focus on that, I'm not exactly sure, just I had developed a love for it. I didn't start actually recognizing the significance of the ancient Near East for interpretation of the Old Testament till I got into graduate school, and particularly in my doctoral work, where I started to recognize the potential impact for interpretation. And so I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on the Tower of Babel and did a lot with comparative studies there. Now, as, as you studied the Old Testament and teach on the Old Testament, I wonder if you might take us a little, give us a little peek into uh, the inner workings of your, of your brain. What's the most frustrating book of the Old Testament to study and do work on? Wow, the most frustrating one. You know, Job has to be one of the most frustrating uh, not because I feel like its message is obscure, but because the language is so obscure. As Old Testament academics, we get very annoyed when we don't know what words mean. And so uh, and there's more of that in Job than anywhere else. So I think that has to, to rank up as one of the frustrating and therefore challenging and therefore interesting books. Mm. 
As an Old Testament scholar, what, what stories from the Hebrew text continually surprise you and in, in their relevance to today's readers? Again, I would have to point to books like Job and Ecclesiastes. Uh, the wisdom literature has this universal relevance because it touches so deeply the human condition and human concerns. And so I find that those those wisdom books are constantly uh, providing food for thought. Now, you've got a, a new book out, well, a new Bible out, if you will. Uh, this is the New Revised Standard Version Cultural Background Study Bible. And in preparation for our interview today, I read the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, just for you. <laughs> and I even threw in the Apocrypha just for fun. But uh, wow. you wrote, you wrote uh, though understanding the background, we can uh, better understand why people spoke and act the way they did and can better identify with them. Besides helping us understand the world in which people in the Bible live, study of ancient texts from the cultures of the biblical world can provide information that we really need to understand the biblical material. Uh, this is a, a huge undertaking. So what made you take it on with your co-laborers, uh, Craig Kenner and Ada Thompson? Yeah, it's a real challenge um, because of course, uh, even though we have uh, far more access to the ancient world than anybody in previous generations, uh, we still feel like we're only scratching the surface. Um, there's so many things that we don't yet understand and that we'd love to understand. And there's so many ways in which our own culture still has hidden influence over our thinking that is difficult to even recognize, let alone rid ourselves of it. So it is an Im immense challenge to try to do this. But the more we're able to do it, the the better we can get at reading the text for what it is. That's the whole goal. We want to be faithful interpreters and we want to read the text for what it is. And it is scripture and it is God's revelation, but it is an ancient document. And therefore it's a challenge for us. It's not just the language that's the challenge. It's the culture that's the challenge. And so that's, it is frustrating because it's such a, a big job and one that we can never hope to finish. Uh, that is to understand fully the ancient world, to think like an Israelite. It just isn't gonna happen. But we can make progress and we can identify places where our own culture gets in the way by making us have presuppositions and assumptions that we would have no right to have when reading an ancient document. Tell us a little bit more about Dr. Kenner and Dr. Thompson, as well as how you collaborated together on this, this new edition. Well, we, we, we really didn't very much. We each had our roles to play, and we each did our parts. So the collaboration uh, was kind of on paper. Um, so we didn't consult with each other um, in terms of me checking his work or, you know, none of that sort of of issue. Um, we just all worked within our own specialties. But I hope also should note that in the Old Testament section, uh, there were some 30 collaborators who uh, contributed to this. Um, the, the foundation for the Old Testament section 
was a five-volume Zondervan work called the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds Commentary. I was the general editor of that, and I had 30 contributors. And in this study Bible, we have taken that information and uh, selected out what we think will be most helpful for the reading audience of the study Bible. And so in the end, there were, there were my editorial decisions to make about what went in and how it went in. But still, I'm very grateful for the uh, 30 colleagues of mine who uh, contributed to it. Now, at, at the heart of this version of the Bible is an understanding of the depths of, of what's going on in the lives of those who are reading it. Um, you know, I read that quote earlier. So why is historical context so important for translation and application? Well, it's important because a culture helps to shape how communication takes place. We all communicate to people in our culture with an assumption of culture. Um, when I talk to students or to a group at church or whoever it might be, I make certain assumptions about what they know and how they think about the world around them. And that affects whether I explain something or just kind of throw it out there and expect that they'll follow me. And so there are cultural assumptions behind every act of communication. And it's not just the words that you use, it's the, the cultural context for it. You know, if I talk about, uh, we've got this new thing that we celebrate now called Pi Day on March 14th. Now, it might be that I can just throw out Pi Day when it's March 14th and lots of people in my context will understand what I'm talking about. But somebody from another culture, there are several huge jumps to make to try to understand why March 14th would be called Pi Day. And it has to do with the Greek alphabet and mathematical notation and the diameter of a circle compared to its circumference and the way that you write dates in American English. It doesn't work in UK because they put the day first and then the month. So there are a lot of cultural jumps to make, but I wouldn't necessarily explain that if I'm talking to an audience that I think understands it. And so there's this concept of culture, which is very much a part of communication. As, as we think about, you know, the depth of historical context, what do you think seem to be the most widely misinterpreted passage of scripture that seemed to be detached from its historical context? Wow, there are lots of them. Um, you know, certainly when we think of some, some of the very obscure passages like Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the sons of God and the daughters of men, uh, it's it's very easy to to bring all kinds of things into that about who you think the Nephilim are and what you think about fallen angels and what you think about who the sons of God might be. Um, a lot of problems, but that one, it's intriguing because cultural background can help us avoid some mistakes, but it doesn't help us to come to a confident interpretation. A passage like Joshua 10 with the sun and moon standing still um, people automatically try to interpret that in light of physics. 
which is our world, not the ancient world. In the ancient world, we find that all the terms like stop and stand and wait that are used in that passage don't really have to do with the physical movements of heavenly bodies. It has to do with how those movements are perceived relative to each other in the way that divination was done in the ancient world. And so to recognize that you need to interpret the text in light of divination instead of interpreting it in light of physics can make a big difference. So it's passages like those, um, passages like the Tower of Babel that I mentioned I did my dissertation on. We tend to read that as if people in their pride are trying to climb up to God and do something devious, whatever it might be. Um, but what we learn from studying the ancient world is that those towers, the ziggurats, were built not for people to go up, but for gods to come down. And therefore, to have a god coming down is not a matter of pride for the people. So now we have to try to figure out what's going on with making a name. And making a name is a well-known uh, ambition in the ancient world. And it's usually a very positive one, not necessarily a negative one or viewed negatively. And so ancient Near East can help us to recognize some of these things that we have to rethink uh, what we've been doing with them. Hmm. You know, the balance of contextualization and application are always a unique dance. So for our listeners, whether clergy or, or lay person, what are the best, what are the best ways uh, to graciously dance that dance? Yeah, it's difficult. Um, lots of times people ask me, why are you making it so hard for me to read my Bible? <laughs> of course, it's not my goal. It's not my goal to make it more complicated. It's my goal to help us to be as faithful as we can possibly be. And so, you know, that's, that's always a troubling question. Uh, but the fact is, it, it can sometimes be hard work. Sometimes the gospel is just simple. Sometimes the message of a text is so straightforward you couldn't miss it. And we're grateful for those kinds of situations. But some passages are very complicated and we need help. You know, an example that I sometimes use is, you know, I'm not much of a handyman. So when something goes a little bit wrong with the plumbing, you know, a little dripping water under the sink, I might crawl under there and, you know, take a look at it as the water drops on my face and, and ask my wife to hand me a wrench or a hammer because they're the only two things I know what to do with and try to do something with them. And it doesn't work so well. The drip just continues. And I decide I need a specialist. I need somebody to help me here because I, I don't want my sink leaking. And sometimes a, a plumber might come and he'll pull out some specialized tool and, and use it. And then within a minute or two, everything's fixed. And I think to myself, boy, if I had a tool like that, I could have done that myself. But I didn't even know such a tool existed. Yeah. But then there are other times where the plumber comes and says, you've got problems. We need to replace a lot of your pipes. Well, I certainly can't do that on my own and wouldn't try it. And so it is when we interpret the, the Bible. Some, some things you can easily fix yourself, even if you're not a specialist. And that's great. That's a lot of the Bible. But there are other places where... You know, you, you could use a special tool and anybody could get a hold of that tool if they know that it exists and that would, that would help them sort things out. But then there are the real problem, the problem passages where we really need some professional help. Now, you know, I'm, 
I don't mind when I have to ask for help from people who know more than me, who have more better training, better understanding of the language, whatever it might be, that's going to help me out. Um, and I, I hope people wouldn't be offended if sometimes they have to come to me for some help to provide some of what I've been able to learn. To me, it's something that just happens in the body of Christ. We all depend on each other. We all help each other. And there, none of us are, are designed to do everything ourselves. And so that's, that's okay. So I depend on other people in the body of Christ to, to use their gifts, and I try to do the same in the gifts that God has given me. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. There's over 300 articles on key contextual topics. And what do you think for you, at least personally, was the most intriguing article uh, in the study Bible? Oh, my. That's a, that's a difficult one to, to choose. Because, again, when we, when we decided to do a particular article, um, we wanted to give a little more attention to a topic that could be confusing. And I just opened at random here to Gideon's Fleece in Judges 6. And, you know, that's that's something that we don't easily understand. Why is he doing this? Why does he lay this thing out? And what did he gain by it? And why did he do it twice with opposite signs? And all those things make perfect sense in the ancient world, but they don't make intuitive sense to us. But I'd hate to say that's my favorite. It's one that I like, but there are lots of them that that I think are really important for us to understand the text. Sometimes these articles and the, the notes here, it's not like they're uh, solving a problem. Sometimes they do, but other times they're just giving more depth to our understanding, um, whether it's historical or geographical or archeological, just gives a little more depth so we know what's going on. And um, it's not that we come out then with a different interpretation, but we come out with a better understanding, which is typically what, what I would like to, to achieve. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't know which one's my favorite. <laughs> it was a trick question. You were supposed to say Song of Solomon. Oh, well, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, you, you, you're a veteran, um, uh, you know, doing this for, for over 40 years, two degrees, uh, 30 degrees in this. And, you know, even myself, a uh, veteran minister of, of 20 years and two degrees in religion and church history, this is a, this is a pretty heavy book, both physically and uh, literarily. Um, so how, how should readers best prepare themselves for it? And, and what's, what's the target audience? Well, we tried to make it so anybody who just really wanted to know more about the biblical passages 
could understand them. You know, we did a lot of editing from that five volume work that I mentioned, not only to pick the best material, um, but also to frame it in such a way that it was accessible. We wanted this to be an accessible tool, and that didn't mean dumbing it down, it just meant making it clear. Um, my associate editor in putting all of that together was my son, uh, who went through all of it and made lots of those decisions for a preliminary and then passed it on to me and I worked through it, uh, either adding things or making changes. And so we, we approached it with that idea of accessibility in mind. Now, some people will still find it pretty, pretty steep going, but I don't think that'll be because of the communication. It's just the depth of the material that they might occasionally think goes deeper than what they want. But usually people who get a study Bible, especially when they know it's a cultural backgrounds one, um, they, they want the depth. And that's what we try to provide. This is, you know, this cultural back, background study Bible has already uh, been released in the NIV and the New King James Version. So why the New Revised Standard Version? Well, it's just a matter of trying to make it available to as many people as we can. People have their preferences with translations. And so if they prefer a certain translation, we want to make those study notes available for them in a, in a translation context that they're comfortable with. Um, Different types of churches tend to use different translations. And so again, this gives the study notes a little bit of reach into different traditions of, uh, of Protestantism and in general Christianity. The, the book is full of, of charts and maps and illustrations. Um, and one of the more fascinating charts in the Old Testament um, is the Old Testament uh, chronology, or specifically the question marks under Genesis 1 through 11's prologue timeline. Um, so take us a little deeper there. You know, biblical literalism doesn't seem to be going away. So how do ministers today take the depth of your work of biblical scholarship and, and pastorally equip people to think deeply about this sacred text that we hold so tightly? Mm -hmm. You know, it is a, it's a juggling act. Um, the, and again, it's, it's partially due to, uh, to culture. Um, we live in a culture that wants to nail all thing, all those things down precisely uh, to the, to the year, to the date, to the time, if we could. And that's just not the, the culture in the ancient world. Um, lots of the numbers that they used um, have a rhetorical aspect to them. And uh, so it's not a matter of trying to just round numbers. It's not a matter of being deceptive in any way. It's just they use them rhetorically. and. That means that we have to try to understand them in the way that they were using them. And that's not always easy for us to do. It's one thing to recognize that this number has rhetorical value. It's another thing to recognize exactly what that rhetorical value is. And this is part of just our whole attempt to understand the ancient world better. You know, I feel it's very important that... Um, even though we take the history of the Hebrew Bible very seriously and 
see historicity as part of God's communication of truth. Yet in the end, our job as faithful interpreters is not to reconstruct the events and all of the aspects, including chronology, surrounding those events. Our job is to read what the inspired text through the spirit-moved narrator is trying to tell us about the message. Uh, the idea that this narrator uh, presents these as things that happened. But it's not just that they happened. He presents them as things that happened with a purpose, as part of God's plan, and what God was doing through it. And those are the things that make up the authoritative message of the text. It's not enough for us to try to reconstruct an event for apologetics purposes. I want to understand the interpretation of the narrator for theological purposes. That doesn't mean that we allow for the possibility that, oh, he's just making the event up. No, of course not. He presents it as a real event. It's a real event. Um, whether we can reconstruct it or not, or prove that it happened or not, what message is he giving from it? And so, in that sense, you know, I don't really have to figure out the numbers. I don't have to reconstruct a chronology. We give what information we can give and understand it as best we can. But in the end, we really need to understand the message of the narrator because that's what carries authority. I'm sitting in my office right now and I'm looking at three different sets of commentaries, at least 10 study Bibles and endless other biblical scholarly works, but I've never really spoken to somebody who's done this kind of work. Uh, so give us a peek behind the curtain of, of what this tremendous undertaking looks like. Well, it's not something that has an end to it. Um, I try to read every piece of ancient literature that gets published. Um, if nothing else, to try to see points of continuity or discontinuity with what I find in the Hebrew Bible. So even since these things were published, I continue to learn new things as I read new texts. Um, so it's an ongoing process. Um, it's sometimes someone else will observe a similarity in a text that I hadn't, hadn't noticed before. Uh, either because I hadn't read the ancient Near Eastern text well enough, or I just didn't have the right biblical text in my mind. I mean, it was even happening today as I was preparing uh, for writing a particular passage in a commentary. So uh, this happens all the time, uh, finding new points of contact, again, either for continuity or discontinuity. I'm interested in both. So what does it look like? Well, you know, when I start trying to write a background commentary, uh, I'm not necessarily going to find a lot of people talking about it, even in the technical commentaries, because technical commentaries have lots of different agendas and tasks that they approach, and backgrounds may or may not be among them. And even when they do have some interest in backgrounds, they're doing lots of other things and therefore may not pay that much attention to backgrounds. So lots of times the information that I have to dig out 
is going to be in journal articles, uh, you know, articles in collections of books, or even comments that I would read in a book about Mesopotamian history or uh, Egyptian religion or whatever it might be. So I have to try to read those things as well. But lots of it comes just from actually reading the primary texts and trying to gather information from them. So it's a wide-ranging process. And when I was doing my dissertation back in the 70s, there weren't sources that you could go to. It was very difficult to dredge up all of this information uh, to even begin to put together comparative study. Fortunately, over the decades since then, uh, more and more people have been making this kind of information available, and it's a little bit easier to get to them. Um, again, even for an academic 30, 40 years ago, it would have been, it was quite a challenge. Um, but these days, um, even lay people with no academic training in biblical studies can have this information accessible, especially through a source like the one we're talking about, like the Cultural Background Study Bible. So it's really decades and decades of, uh, of effort by many, many different academics uh, to gather this kind of information. Well, knowing the amount of work you put into this, what is your hope for it? My hope is that people will be able to read the Bible and understand it better and also avoid the mistakes that come when we read our own culture into a text. You know, what I'd like to say is that the Bible is not written to us, but it was written for us. But we can't really understand the for us part with confidence if we haven't taken a, a little bit of look at least at the to whom, at what, what did it say to them? Because what it said to them has to be at the, at the foundation of what it means for us. And so my hope would be that people could start recognizing that they can't just read their own culture into the, the biblical text. I, I use the illustration at the front of the study Bible about a cultural river and that we've got our own cultural river with things like uh, politics and economics and science and values and society. Um, and it's all part of our cultural river. It's the world we know. It's got things like freedom and democracy. It's got things like market economy. It's got things like uh, social networks and expanding universes. It's all part of our cultural river. And we understand this world, even if we don't like it, even if there's things we disagree with. It's kind of the world of discourse and our, our understanding. Um, but people who wrote the Bible didn't know our cultural river. They didn't anticipate it. They didn't address it. And so if we go reading our cultural river into the text, we're doing damage. We're putting something foreign in the text. And just because God had this produced for us doesn't mean it has all kinds of hidden things about our cultural river. We don't expect to open up the book of Proverbs and find verses about social networks. We don't expect to open up the book of Kings and find a discussion of monarchy versus democracy. 
we don't expect to open up the book of Deuteronomy and find discussions of market economy versus agro-pastoral economies. Um, we shouldn't expect to open up Genesis and find discussions of expanding universe or evolution. They don't know our cultural river. And so if, if a work like this only gets us so far as to helping us to recognize some of the ways that we tend to force our cultural river onto the text, that would be a help. If in addition, we might find ways to understand their cultural river a little better, that's a bonus. And so that's the kind of information that we're trying to provide. You know, if, if I had produced a work like this, that would be it. I would be done. But I know you're probably working on something else. So what's next for you? What are you working on next? Well, right now I'm in the middle of a huge commentary on Daniel. And so it's uh, in the New International Commentary on the Old Testament series that Erdman's produces. And I've got a co-author, a colleague here, Aubrey Buster. And so we're trying to give a very thorough um, interpretation of the book of Daniel. Sounds fascinating. It's a fascinating and it's challenging and it's frustrating and it's hard and it's enlightening and yeah. Well, you know, we only get to see the finished product where y'all make it look so easy. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anybody will think this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for those that want to find out more information uh, about this translation, you can follow the NRSV on social media. You can go out and purchase Cultural Background Study Bible, specifically the NRSV edition. Uh, Dr. Walton, thank you for your good work in training us to complicate our reading of the Bible because historical context and application are and should be a challenging and beautiful dance. It's my pleasure. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.